We are in our series entitled Invisible War. Now, I, I know that there are many here that have actually seen war. Sometimes we ha- talk about that in kind of a generalities for people that haven't seen it, but I know that there are some that are here that it, war is all too real. For those especially where have come from lands where uh, not from the United States and you have come here seeking peace, you have come here to remove yourself from danger and oppression and be a safe place, you know war all too well. Um, and we have to understand that this war that we're talking about is an invisible war, and it's one that we are all in. And it's just as dangerous. matter of fact, it's even more dangerous because we don't see it all the time. Uh, other war, you can hear the gunshots, you can flee, and you know what's going on. But this is a war where many people are blinded, and it's a cosmic war, and it's a very real war. And I don't think I need to tell and convince anyone in here that evil does really exist. That it's not just a figment of our imagination. It's not just something that we um, make up. But there is a real devil, Satan. He is a real spirit being. He's not something that we make up. He's not something that walks around with the red skin and a goatee and horns and goat's legs with a pitchfork. That is not the picture of the Bible presents of the devil. Instead, we, he is presented as a fallen angel, one who is an archangel of God, created as one to lead the angels in worship of Almighty God, known as Lucifer the light bearer. We're going to be talking about him. We're going to be talking about his agents that are demons uh, up in the next several weeks, looking at the enemies uh, that we have, which is the, as we saw in the video, we have the, the very spirit realm, Satan and his demons, and demons are fallen angels. Uh, just to get this out of the way, we need to let people understand that when you die, you, and if you were evil, you don't become a demon, no more than you die and you were good and you became an angel. That's not how the Bible presents it at all. I'm not sure where that imagery came from, but the Bible presents angels as created to be servants of Almighty God. And there are an innumerable amount of them, thousands upon thousands of them, that God created. And Satan was one of those angels, and he was cast out of heaven when pride was found in him. In essence, he wanted to receive the praise that was for God, and God kicked him out of heaven along with those who had rebelled with him, and they became Satan and his demons. We we use many terms for the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, Uh, These are several titles that you will see us and we will talk about today and in the weeks to come. But he is not our only enemy. I mean, we have three enemies. We have the world, which is this social evil, this fallen world system, this philosophical thought process that is prevalent within our world today. That is the world. And then we have uh, Satan and his demons. And then we have our sinful, unredeemed flesh. And this is uh, the evil that we find in and of ourselves that each one of us has to learn to deal with and wrestle with. And we know that we, we struggle with sin. Everyone in this room knows that we struggle with doing the things that we know we should not do, with things we know we should do and we don't do. These are the things that war against our flesh. And we, we understand that we have these three enemies. What we often don't realize is we also have three allies, Allies. Now, to combat the world, God has given us other believers, the church. 
There are, that's why there is no such thing as being a lone ranger Christian. God has purchased a group of people to be his bride, which is the body of Christ. There is the universal church, the people that are believers in Christ all over the world. And then there is the local body of believers in which we are to find and join in order to learn to fight against the schemes and the fiery arrows of the evil one. So he's given us the church to combat the world's temptations. He's also given us the Holy Spirit within us. When you become a believer in Christ, God places his spirit within you to help transform you from the inside out to be more like his son. So God is, is changing you to make you look like a little Jesus. In essence, he wants to give you his mind, his thoughts, his actions, his attitudes. And that's what the Spirit of God is doing as the Word of God is being taught to us, transforming us again from the inside out to fight the evil one and the evil inclinations that we have in our souls. So we have the the church to help fight the world. We have the Spirit of God to help fight our flesh. And then there are angels. Now, there are real angels living, breathing angels. And these angels are spirit creatures. They're created. They are stronger than us, but yet they cannot attain into the same level of intimacy that we can have as uh, the Word of God says that one day the saints will judge angels. And a matter of fact, in 1 Peter, it says that angels long to understand how we can have salvation and an intimate relationship with God. So right now, though they might be stronger They are more powerful, but at the end of time, when we are in the presence of God, we will be glorified and we will have the opportunity to really experience God in all of his fullness in a way that angels cannot. But as we worship as God's people, we fail to realize that there is a battle going on in our hearts, in our minds, and even in our midst, because angels are actually in the presence of God's people. So there are angels here right now. Think about that. And we, we don't think about that. Where are they? Where are they? I don't know. I don't know if they're sitting. I don't know if they're standing. I know that they're here. Whenever the word of God is preached, wherever God's people are gathered, there are angels there. So we understand we have three enemies. We have three allies. And we have, God has equipped us with weapons. He doesn't send us into war without giving us the right tools. So we're going to be talking about the weapons of our warfare. So today, what I want us to be doing is we're, we're going to give a, a general introduction and overview, and then we're going to get into this passage specifically to talk about what spiritual warfare is and just see how God has, has ordained it, how he's created it, and how we can see how it affects our life. Because it does. It is a battle that we find, each one of us finds ourselves in. And I, I think about that. I think of the story of President John F. Kennedy. President John F. Kennedy, when he was a soldier, uh, when he was, in, uh, he was actually in World War II, and when he was in World War II, he was a, a naval officer on a patrol boat, the PT-109. And it was rammed and sank, sunk by an enemy destroyer, destroyer near the Japanese-held Solomon Islands in August of 1943. And Kennedy and a fellow officer swam from one enemy-occupied island to the next until they found some really friendly islanders who helped them contact U.S. forces. Years later, Kennedy was hailed as a war hero, but his candid response was, it was involuntary. I was there entirely because they sank my boat. 
See, many of us find ourselves in this war. It's an involuntary thing. If you, bele- if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are ushered into it in even more respect. But every one of us, just by being born and, and being God's image bearers, are born into a war zone between the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly realms, between God and Satan. And we need to understand that, that we cannot get out of it. We can't pretend to put our heads in the sand. We can't pretend that we are Switzerland and have some type of neutrality. We can't have a medical exemption. We cannot close our eyes to it. Every single one of us in this room is in this battle, and we find ourselves, the devil making claim to us, and God counterclaiming and trying to bring that person back. It is a war of two kingdoms in complete conflict. Now today we are going to see this war, we're going to see what it is, and how we are to battle in the midst of it. We're going to see how it affects each one of us. So as we approach this subject, I want each of us to have several questions in our minds. First of all, how do I understand this, and where did I get my understanding on this? Do I even realize that I'm in a war? How do I, what is spiritual warfare exactly? Isn't that for the charismatics? I mean, many of us think that, that very same thing, that that's for people of, that are other Christian. No, that's for anyone who is a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus. You are in and are to be waging spiritual warfare. What is it exactly? We're going to define it. And what does God want us all to see and apply from this message to our lives Monday morning? This isn't just something for Sunday, but it's something to get us through our week. These are just some of the questions we're going to answer today. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we come into your presence right now. Lord, proclaim your word, knowing that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you have intended it. And Lord, I pray that it might cut us deep, that it might show us the reality of who you are. Lord, that there is a battle of cosmic proportions going on, the greatest war the universe has ever seen or will see. And Lord, help, to remove, help us to have the blinders removed that we might see you, that we may not know how to live in the midst of this war and how we might wage it successfully for the glory of your name. So Lord, I pray today that you open our eyes. And Lord, for those who, who are not believers, who have not placed their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that you might show them that you are God's Christ, that you, might, you are the, the one true and living God who sent your Son to die for us so that in him we might have forgiveness of sins and life forevermore with you. So Lord, touch us, use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump right in. Now, Billy Graham, the great Billy Graham, described spiritual warfare in this way. He says, we live in a perpetual battlefield. The greater war of the ages continues to rage. Now, remember, this man has spoken to more people than the Apostle Paul. He's traveled all over the world. I mean, spoken to so many countless people, and God has continued to preserve him, and he continues to testify even in old age. And the lines of the battle press in ever more tightly about God's own people. The wars among the nations on earth that many of you have seen firsthand, you understand all too well. Many of you bear the marks on your body. You have visited the graves of family members. You know the heartbreak of war. 
The lines of the battle press in ever more tightly about God's own people. The wars among nations on earth are merely pop gun affairs compared to the fierceness of battle in the spiritual unseen world. This invisible spiritual conflict is waged waged around us incessantly and unremittingly. He continues on. Where the Lord works, Satan's forces hinder. Where angel beings carry out their divine directive, the devil's rage. All this comes about because the powers of darkness press their counterattack to recapture the ground held for the glory of God. Now, when we use this term spiritual warfare, we, we have to understand, first of all, the term is never used in Scripture, but the concept and the principle very much is over and over again. And when we talk about spiritual warfare, we need to get some preliminary things out of the way first, okay? We need to remove some confusing ideas. We must make sure that we approach this subject correctly. That's the first point I want you to write down in your notes if you want to follow along. We have to learn to approach this correctly because if we approach it incorrectly, we will have disastrous consequences later in our understanding of who the devil is. So we have to be very careful. We must go straight to the Word of God and say, what does the Bible say about the truth of spiritual warfare? Now, we we need to understand a few things, first of all. And undoubtedly, if you have been in Christ or you've encountered other Christians in your life or encountered some Christians, you're going to find people all over the map in terms of spiritual warfare. First of all, you're going to encounter people that are consumed with it. They're just completely consumed. That's all they care about is angels and demons. There's no idea of a holy life. There's no idea of sacrifice. There's no idea of helping the widow, the orphan, those that are oppressed. It's all a spiritual warfare and and the spiritual battle, and there's no other understanding, and they see a demon in every little thing. It's the demon behind the bush. It's the demon in my front tire. The reason my coffee maker doesn't work is that there's a demon in it. I, I mean, these are people that see demons everywhere, and we have to make sure that we can't be consumed by it. That's one extreme. Now, there are others that are just completely callous to it. These are the unbelievers. These are people that say there is no such thing as demons. We have advanced scientifically uh, in our Western society today. We understand science. We understand that not uh, every sickness has a demon behind it, but there are bacteria, there are germs, there are all of these different things. There are no such things as demons in the world today. It's just something wrong with them psychologically, or there's a chemical imbalance, and there are rooms for those things. Okay, let me not throw out the bad with the body with the bathwater. But these are people that are completely callous to it. And undoubtedly so because people have seen some awful extremes. For example, in March of 1995, so we're talking 20 years ago, five Korean women were arrested and charged with murder for allegedly beating a young woman to death in their attempt to cast a demon out. And during the summer of the same year, a man on a weekend fishing trip with his two teenage sons near Instancia, New Mexico, came to the conclusion that the boys were possessed by the devil. He pulled off to the side of the road and beheaded one of his sons, while the other fled the scene. Investigators on the, uh, on the case said he indicated he was trying to beat back the demons he thought his child was the devil. Now see, those are extreme cases, and that's where it is outside of the parameters of what God has said and how to deal with these situations. And so we must go back and say, what is the word of God said? And we understand that people that we encounter are going to be callous to it because of the extreme forms of abuse that have been seen in situations as I just mentioned. 
Now, we, we have those who are consumed by it. We have others that are callous to it. And we have other people, and you might be one of these, that you're just completely confused by it. You're, you're confused by it. You might have encountered some things that you can't explain. And, uh, like the woman, uh, there's a woman named Barbara who went to a conference. They were talking about spiritual warfare. And as she's going through this conference, some very strange things started happening in her life. And she thought it was because of she learned about these things. She didn't want to know anymore. And she didn't want to deal with those strange things. So she never went back to the conference again because it totally brought it to the forefront. And these are people that are saying, I don't want to deal with this kind of thing. I don't understand it. Let me just play and do my relationship with God. And we're not going to talk about it. And we'll just go away. And we, ha- we fail to realize that we are, we are in the midst of this battle. You know, one person said that the greatest trick the, ever, the devil ever played was to get people to believe that he didn't exist. And some people, you cannot pretend ignorance. You can't pull back and not part of the battle. That is, it, that's just Satan trying to intimidate you to keep you out of there so you're ineffective. So we have to make sure that we are going to the Word of God. We can't be confused by this. We have to say, what does the Bible say about it? And not what does other, do other people say, not what do religious teachers say, not what uh, elders say. What does the Word of God say? Because people have ideas all the time. And I've encountered people, this is how the devil works, or this is how the devil does this. And I'm always amazed at how well they know the devil. Especially when the Word of God doesn't say anything about that. How do you know that? And that's why it causes great confusion. So we have to go back and say, what does the Word of God say? So we ought to make sure that we're not consumed with it, we're not callous to it, and we need not be confused by it, but we need to make sure that we are conscious of it. Conscious of it. And what I mean by that is this. We, it, it, just like a, a quarterback on a football team, when he drifts back to pass, and I think of when Brett Favre used to play for the Green Bay Packers, and he would uh, drop back to pass, and he was playing the Chicago Bears, he needed to know where Brian Urlacher was at all times. Now, he couldn't be consumed by him, but he needed to know where he was because he needed to see how to operate on the field, but he couldn't just stare at him the entire time. Then he couldn't play the game. The same with us. We need to make sure that we are conscious that the devil is working, but we're not to be seeking out the devil. We're not to be seeking out angels. We're not to go on a journey to try to find demons. That is not what the Bible does. You don't see Jesus going on a demon hunt. He doesn't see it looking around with his paranormal device like Ghostbusters, looking around trying to find out where they are. Okay, The scripture is not a Ghostbusters manual. That's not what it's about. We need to make sure that we are conscious of it, but not consumed by it. Now, let's take a moment and let's define. We need to define what spiritual warfare is. Define spiritual warfare accurately. That's what we need to do. Now, I'm going to give you several definitions. Um, You don't need to write down the first few because they're quite long. I'm going to give you a short, succinct one. That one you can write down. The first one comes from Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a systematic theologian, uh, educated at Harvard University, evangelical believer, very, very smart man, great scholar, and he says uh, spiritual warfare is the use of spiritual weapons used against demonic forces that hinder the spread of the gospel and the progress of the church, including such things as prayer, worship, the authority to rebuke demonic forces. We do have that authority as Bible-believing Christians, and because we have Christ in us, Um, and we are his image bearers, we are recipients of his atoning work of salvation, we have that opportunity um, not to be misused, 
and not to be um, just used haphazardly, but specifically, intentionally in certain situations. In the words of Scripture, the Word of God is powerful. What did Jesus use to rebuke the devil? The Bible. Um, and if he did that, who is the author of it, he expects us to do that as well. That it, because the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. So we have um, the words of Scripture, faith itself, righteous conduct on the part of the members of the church. Very, very true. Because the devil tries to accuse those, uh, the, especially he will accuse you and me of all of our past sins. He will bring them up again and again and again. But when we are walking, when we are living in the forgiveness of Christ's death that it has given unto us, when we are walking rightly, we are above reproach. We're doing what the Word of God says, not to say that we're going to be perfect, but when we're, our lives are in the trajectory of sanctification, meaning we are becoming more like Jesus, then the devil's, um, the devil's tactics have less of an effect on our lives. But when we are living in a state of sin, continually we are giving the devil a foothold and an opportunity, matter of fact, using your life as a megaphone to other people to show that really Jesus is not the Son of God. So if you are living in a state of sin right now, and you know that, then God, Satan is going to use that. He's going to keep you in that because it, he's using your life to turn other people off to Jesus. Because he's showing that you are a complete hypocrite. And he's making anyone who looks like saying that they're a follower of Jesus, and then they're hypocrites too. And other people go, if that's what Jesus is, I don't want who he is. So we have to use our righteous conduct on the part of the members of the church. That is one of the weapons. Wayne Grudem is not the only one. Dr. Ed Murphy, missionary, uh, written a lot about spiritual warfare. Matter of fact, has an entire handbook on spiritual warfare. He says that spiritual warfare is the war with sin and sinful personalities. While all human beings are victims of spiritual warfare, its primary combatants are God and his angels and children, who are us, if you, are a, if you are a believer in Christ, you are, becoming, you are part of God's family, you are God's child, who are opposed by Satan and his demons. It is warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, evil, of the devil. So what that means is this, that as soon as you become a follower of Jesus, that there is a mark on you. You are marked. That Satan is out then to get you. Now, he's not trying to get out the unbeliever. He already has the unbeliever. The scripture says that he has successfully blinded the minds of unbelievers. So unbelievers can't see it. They don't get it. They're continuing on. He's got them. He doesn't need to worry about it. But when you become a believer in Christ, now he's after you. And we always talk about the devil's after me. The reality is, in the words we use, though we use that generally, really the devil's not after you. It's his demons that are after you. He's going to have much bigger fish to fry trying to figure out how to make Billy Graham sin. Okay, that, that's who the, the devil's after, the leaders, the big ones that have the platforms. Because if he can get them down, he can bring down other, others of us easier and cause disrepute to the name of Christ. But it's, so if you are a believer in Christ, Satan is out to get you. And he's going to send his demons to get you. He's going to try to wreck your marriage. He's going to go after your kids. He's going to go after your job. He's going to go after all manner of things to rip apart your life. And to keep you away, by the way, from God's people. He's going to keep you away from church. Because he doesn't want, to be, want you to be in church because that's where God's spirit is, real, is, is, is showing itself as the body of Christ comes together. It's the word of God is being proclaimed. It's where the praises of, uh, and when we are praising God, God communicates his presence to us. That's why worship is such a serious thing, folks. 
It's a big time thing. Remember, what did the devil try to get Jesus to do? To worship him. Because there's a war for your worship. The essence of who you are. It's the most powerful commodity the world has ever seen. Satan wants your worship. He wants to steal it. He wants to distract you. He, wants you, he doesn't want you to worship God. Because when you are worshiping God, that's when God communicates his presence to you and to his body, the church. So Ed Murphy, that's his definition. Then the next definition we have is by Pastor John MacArthur uh, in California, very well-known author. Um, he says the spiritual warfare is a war of universal proportions, pitting God and his truth against Satan and his lies. Satan is the father of lies. It's his native tongue, as Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44. It is a battle of wills between God and Satan. It's a cosmic conflict that involves God and the highest creature ever made, and it filters down to every human being. Satan and his army of demons are fighting Christ, his holy angels, the nation of Israel, and believers. The battle lines are clearly drawn. Clearly drawn. Now, those are all the extensive definitions. Let's give you a short one, okay? Here's a short one. Tony Evans, I like this one. It's the invisible war waged in the spiritual realm but fleshed out in the visible physical realm. Short, succinct definition. It's an invisible war that's going on all around us, waged in the spiritual realm. And there is a spiritual realm that's going on. We cannot see angels and demons all the time, but there are times where they may manifest themselves. Uh, the Bible talks about this. We see this in, in Abraham's interaction where he has three visitors come to him. One is uh, God himself. It's a pre-incarnate, what we call a pre-incarnate Christ. And then he has two angels. And we also see in Hebrews that sometimes you might have people over your home and you might be entertaining angels unawares. You might have that. So there are times where angels do um, manifest themselves more in human form. Now, demons can possess people. Um, I've had some interactions in my ministry that have been very, very difficult. I was 24 years old. I was a brand-new pastor. I got called to the home of a, uh, of a woman who had a, a woman who was from the Philippines. Uh, she was a guest, um, and she would not come out of her room. She kept hearing voices. She was urinating and defecating in her room, and I was called to bring her out of this room. 24 years old. I didn't... I mean, you see these things on TV, you see things on movies, but you walk in, you know that there's presence of evil. I'm not a person that sees demons everywhere, but I'm a person that, unfortunately, we've had, being a pastor, you encounter certain things like that. My own, uh, some of you know my mother-in-law, and I, uh, my mother-in-law, for those who don't know, was a Wicca witch for many years. So I used to make the joke that my mother-in-law was a witch. I really meant it. I really meant it. And uh, there were some times where there's some things that we saw of her, and God has delivered her. Since then, she has come back to faith in Christ uh, from that, but going to her home, seeing a pentagram on her wall, seeing all of the, the accoutrements of the occult right there, the paraphernalia that goes with it. And having, we had her in our home once, and I, and I tell you, it was one of the most darkest nights of our lives. Um, it was the first time we had our first child, and uh, my daughter was there. She was only maybe, I don't know how many months old, and my mother-in-law was there. And uh, I could not, ha- knowing that this woman was a witch, I couldn't hand my baby to a witch. I, I just couldn't do that. And uh, I, I remember uh, she had been in our home and we were praying. We had so many people praying. And that night um, that she was there, it became very, very dark to the point where my wife came in our bedroom and she goes, honey, there's something wrong in our home. She walked out of the bedroom and I, or I walked out of the bedroom and you just felt this evil presence there. 
and I'm appropriating the armor of God in my mind. I am, I am quoting scripture. And she goes, can you bring a baby in? So we bring the baby into our bed, and, and we're just praying very, very, very heavily. And we, the next morning woke up, and uh, my mother-in-law was in torment, really. She was in all this pain, and the only way that she would quiet herself, uh, be quiet, is if my wife would pray this CD of uh, praise music. And it would quiet, almost like Solomon with David. Remember when, when David would play the harp? Not Solomon, excuse me, Saul. Uh, he would play the harp for Saul, and he would quiet, and she would quiet then. And I had more people praying. I didn't know. I'd never cast out a demon before. It's not something that you learn in seminary in demonology 101. Um, I, I didn't know what to do. I called a pastor friend of mine. I said, have you ever cast out a demon? He goes, nope, but I'll come over and help. And I thought, okay, I don't know how to do this. Um, so we, we continued to pray and just were looking for the right opportunity. And we were trying to get her to Sunday. Saturday. We're trying to get her to Sunday. We want to go to church. We wanted to be in God's people to see what would happen and uh, to see God would, would touch her. And that night, she became so disturbed that she demanded to leave our home. This is what she had been in Montana. She made us. She was so insistent that she, uh, we, changed, we ended up changing the flight. We acquiesced to her wishes. I'm not telling you this is the best way to handle this. I'm just telling you what happened. And um, we woke up in the morning. She was standing outside with her bags packed. And she would not step foot back in the house because we had so many people praying. There was a war for her soul. It was demonic, clearly. And I can tell you of other things that we've seen and heard, manifesting voices of different people. Um, I mean, I remember David Wood was here one night, and he gave me a phone call. He said, Travis, you have to come over right now. We have a woman here that's demon-possessed. Well, that's not a phone call you get very often. And uh, you, sometimes, you, and you have to understand, sometimes there is possession, sometimes there's mental illness. Sometimes demons can help and affect mental illness. Sometimes mental illness is just the result of the fall itself. So you have to be discerning. You have to be discerning. Because not every mental illness is a, is a result of a demonic assault. Sometimes it's just the fallen condition itself. So we have to be very prayerful. And again, I'm not telling you because I've had a great deal of success and I'm an expert in this issue. I'm just making sure that we are being prepared and being discerning as we prayerfully, fearfully follow God and seek to do what his word has said because we do have victory. And God has showed us that within his word, that we do have victory as we wage this war. And it is a war that is going on. Now, um, we want to go through, we looked at spiritual warfare generally. Now I want to get specific. I want us to turn to this passage, if you haven't yet already, to Second Kings. Now, this is a wonderful passage I love this passage. Actually, it's one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, um, as we really walk into this. Now, I want to set the stage a little bit. Um, you have Samaria and Syria. They, these two countries had been on good terms for a period of time. We could see that in 2 Kings in just the previous chapter. Uh, but things had deteriorated. And Elisha, remember you have the prophet Elijah, and then you have his successor Elisha. Um, who has taken over this prophetic mantle. He is now the prophet in Israel. In Israel, usually, uh, there's a school of prophets, but there usually is one more uh, spokesman that usually God has chosen to speak to on behalf of um, himself, and he will then speak to the people. So Elisha is... um, is he is working with the Samaritans. Now, Samaritans, for those that don't know, these were people that only had the half the, of the truth of God's word. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. 
um, and it was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, they were known as half-breeds in that they didn't have, uh, they weren't full Jews. They had been intermixed with the Assyrians um, at that time. And there was a kind of, they'd taken the people off the land and they sent back others and who had intermarried with some of the people that were there. And so there wasn't a lot of interaction. There was a lot of political tension. There's racial tension that's going on. And yet God, through Elisha, is speaking to the Samaritans about some impending doom, disaster that is about to uh, befall them through the Syrians. And so the Syrians are plotting to come in and invade, and God reveals to Elisha these plans. And so Elisha then goes and tells the leaders what's going on, so they change their tactics. They move so that they show up, and they're not there, they can't take them, they can't face them in battle. And, and finally, they learn that Elisha is behind it, and they're angry. And it's amazing how they've learned this. And they talk to their, the king and they say, hey, this is what's going on. And he goes, well, if we're ever going to get him, we've got to take Elisha out. So let's, let's find Elisha. So he, they find out that he's in the city of Dothan, which is about 10 miles north of the Samaritan capital city. Um, and it's, they had crossed over the border to get him. And um, they, so we have, we have them... Knowing about, though, that God was speaking and telling things of their battle plans through uh, Elisha. Now, I want us to look at verse 11 of 2 Kings chapter 6. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. He's angry. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who is for us or for the king of Israel? Uh, Also, Samaria. They're using these terms as synonyms of one another at the time. And one of his servants said, None, my lord. O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send him and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, it's interesting, especially in the ancient world, when you're sending chariots, it's like ancient tanks. They're sending armored tanks after this one man. So he's sending the army after this guy. I mean, a little overkill, if you think about it. But they'd heard the stories of Elijah, and they'd known that Elijah had called down fire from God that had taken out 50 groups, uh, smaller contingencies of soldiers. So he's like, I'm going to totally overwhelm him. This is shock and awe. So he's coming at him hardcore. So he brings this full army after Elisha. I mean, you can imagine the people in the city, when they see these chariots coming in and surrounding him. I mean, imagine tanks coming around the city of Aurora or Oswego, or Hinkley, or Big Rock, or Montgomery, or wherever home is for you. And imagine tanks just coming in, and everybody's talking about it. There's, you're not a way around it, and you see all of these tanks. You can hear it. So there's this, this fear that comes over all the people. Now, look at verse 15. When the servant of the man, man of God rose early in the morning and went out. So it must have been in the middle of the night that this was taking place. So they, they, they hadn't seen it until morning. So this is Elisha's servant. This is his right-hand guy. He says, Went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? In verse 16, Elisha responds, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now, I want us to see a few things about this. First of all, we need to understand that God is working out his plans and his purposes. He's working faithfully. He is working faithfully to accomplish his plans and his purposes, even to the faithless nation of Samaria who had turned away from the one true God. Even though Elisha is there, as a whole, the nation had turned away. So God is still working faithfully behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes, even waging war in his own means to do so. And he is working in ways that are invisible or invisibly in ways that we cannot fathom. God is working even behind the scenes invisibly in ways that we cannot fathom. We want to see instant results. We are an instant result people. We want everything right now. We, want, we are fast food, instantaneous, nanosecond, don't want to wait, don't feel I have to wait for anything. And we plant, transplant that into our spiritual lives. And we have to understand that God is working out in ways and things that are beyond our ability to see. And he's working behind the scenes in your life in ways that we cannot fathom through your children, through your work, in your your marriage. He's working in ways that we cannot fathom. And here he is definitely working invisibly behind the scenes. The Syrian army couldn't approach. They were approaching. They didn't see it. They didn't see what was going on around them. They didn't know. Even the servant, Elisha's servant, who had known the truth about who God is, who'd worked hand in hand with him, he couldn't see it. But Elisha could. He is working in invisibly in ways that we cannot fathom. And his timetable is not your timetable. God does things in his own time, in his own way. And to give you an idea of this, I don't know if you have heard of King, king Cyrus. Anyone ever heard of King Cyrus? King Cyrus, uh, he was the king of the uh, Medo-Persians. And the book of Isaiah talks about him. Actually, in Isaiah chapter 44 and Isaiah chapter 45, talk about Cyrus who would come and remove, actually release the Israelites of their bondage in Babylon. Now, what's amazing about this is he's prophesied by name, by name, the word, name Cyrus is there, 200 years before he was born. 200 years. God had been planning way before that. He was working in subtle ways, bringing this plan to come about. And God, that's what he likes doing. He, he loves working invisibly behind the scenes in ways that we cannot see or fathom or understand. But understand that God is there and he's not silent. God is in your life. He's working things in your life right now. Behind the scenes. He's there. You might say, where is God in the midst of this? He's there. He allows things to accomplish and in, in, in things that, uh, for us to go through that are beyond our ability to understand, whether it's the sickness of, or loss of a child or spouse or the loss of a job or career or a health issue. God is there. He's working through your situation in ways that we cannot begin to fathom. Because we say, where is God? He's there and he's not silent. Now, second thing that we can see about God is that his power and his plans are incomprehensible. We can't begin to understand all of his plans from beginning to end. God is way beyond us. And we have this tendency to want to make God fit in the box. And it reminds me of uh, the theologian Augustine living in the 4th century. And he's walking along the beach and he sees this child. He was uh, taking this small bucket of water in the ocean and he had dug out a hole and he's putting it in this hole. And Augustine was, tr- Augustine was trying to think about who God was and the, his being and the fact that he was triune. And this, he sees this child and he says to the child, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to keep working until I get the entire ocean into this hole. That's what many of us try to do with God. 
He is beyond our ability to understand, to fathom, that God created time itself and yet works within it. In some ways, time does not exist to God as it does to us. Just like right now, you're being born, you're dying, you're having children. In God's mind, it's all, he can see it all in the present. God has no limitations. It's in his nature and his being, the essence of who he is. And people say, well, who made God? No one made God. Because if someone made God, then that person would be God. God is without beginning, without ending. He is that's why when Moses asked, when he was being commissioned to go back to the Israelites, he said, who do I say that your name is? When I go and speak to the people, they're going to ask who you are. And he says, say that I am. There's no other way to define me. I am. So his ways are incomprehensible. As Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God is working in ways, in comprehensible ways that we cannot fathom. Now let's look back at our text. Then Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, O Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now the wording here indicates that it was an extreme amount. There was an army that the, the Syrian commander had sent, but when we see that it was just... It was a smaller surrounding, but when it talks about Elisha and the opening their eyes, it is all over the mountain. It is everywhere. So when God sends his heavenly host, his army, realize that his numbers are innumerable. His army is innumerable. It is massive. We can't always see them. Sometimes God does allow us to see them either literally by his spirit or in our mind's eye. I remember uh, when I was preaching in India in in, uh, this past October, and I remember we put out a prayer request and many of you were praying for me. And I I, I can't tell you, when I got ready to to preach, I had never experienced the presence of God in that moment that I ever had in any other time in my life. And I was getting ready to stand before these 1,600 pastors. And I sat there and I, I started to cry because I was overwhelmed with the presence of God. And, and, and then as I'm praying and just trying to take all this in, I am seeing in my mind, and I don't know my imagination running on or is God showing it to me, but across every entrance in my mind, I could see an angel standing, like guarding the entrance, like his word is going to be proclaimed right now and nothing's going to stop it. There is not going to be any demonic inhabitation or demon possession or any type of demonic outburst, and there were some. There was one man that was preaching, and another man stood up and started accusing him, shouting, foaming. I mean, this is stuff that we see. And of course, me with my Western mind going, I, what do I do now? Didn't know what to do. And we see there is the demonic that's there. And, but I'm seeing these angels, the strength and power that God is going to proclaim his word. Then, I just wanted to get out of the way and let him do his thing. I realize that his, his, his numbers are innumerable and his army is invincible. Invincible. Now, we, we have to be careful, even as we're understanding this definition of what spiritual warfare is, that it's not just God. It is played out as God versus Satan, but Satan is not on an equal playing ground with God. It's not. It's like, a, it's like T-ball versus the Cubs or whatever baseball team you're a fan of that's good. That's what it is. It's the small against the mighty. Satan cannot take God out. That's why he goes after his people. Because he can't get to him. 
It's, it's not a fair fight. It's not that Satan is, Satan is a created, limited being. Even Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said even the devil is God's devil. And he's on a leash. He's on a leash. He can't do anything. Think about in the book of Job. He comes into the presence of God and he has to ask permission. He has permission. Can I do this to him? Can I do that to him? He can't do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to do. God has given him a limited amount of freedom. Why he does this, we do not know. But he does. And he's still good. He's still good. He's still benevolent. He still loves us. But he's allowed Satan to have this freedom for this period of time. And we don't understand why. But we do know that God has declared that he is invincible. And Satan knows that his time is short. That he is a defeated foe. And do you know how he was defeated? At the cross. He was defeated at the cross. Jesus died. Not anybody. It wasn't anyone else. There are some that think that it wasn't Jesus. It has been his, historically verified outside in other historical books outside of the Bible that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, and rose again. There wasn't a substitute. There was, it was a real living man. And then even unbelievers testified at that fact. Historians, unbelievers testified about it. He lived in real time. He wasn't, just, he wasn't a myth. I mean, there are resurrection stories in different religions, within Roman mythology, Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, or in Indian mythology. There are these resurrection stories. But none of them happened in time. That's one thing that the Bible does totally different. It gives real names of real historical figures that lived in that time. And then he died and rose again. And what Satan thought was his greatest victory ended up being his greatest defeat. And now he is defeated. He knows that his time is short. His time is short. God's army is innumerable and he is invincible. Now knowing that God is invincible, knowing that through him we now are more than conquerors, we need to learn how to wage war victoriously. Wage war victoriously. That we are fighting for victory. We've already been given the victory. We are fighting, fighting from a position of victory. It's not something that we think is going to happen at the end of time. It is predicted. The game is fixed. The score is determined. It's going to end up that way. No one is going to be able to stop it. Even though Satan is going to try hard to do so. He's going to make, try, to, try to make people think that he still has all this power. And in order for us to wage war victoriously, it requires us to remember our power source. That we come in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is powerful. There are certain names that you can say that bring a lot of power with it, that bring some prestige with it. And, you, and, and we've had people name people different things. Like if I say a name to you, you'll go, I know who that is. There's some power with it. If I say the name LeBron James, big athlete in the here and now, people know who that is. And people might even honor LeBron James and, and name their child LeBron James, but that child, even though it might have the name, doesn't have the power because it's, it's, really it's not that same person. Now, see, for us to really tap into the power of who God is, we have to understand who Jesus is, and then we understand that by faith in him, we have all the benefits and all the power that has been given unto him. He helps give unto us as his children. Now, think about that. Think about who you are now. You're not just, I mean, we're more than conquerors. 
we're becoming more and more like him. We're, we have to remember our power source, that it doesn't come from us in and of ourselves, but we, through, through Jesus, have the power of his name in our lives. We have to understand our power source. It doesn't come from us. Our name has no power. It's only through God himself. We have to understand our power source. And we also have to understand and need to invite God to change our perspective. Perspective. Now, what I love about this story and this, this passage in Scripture, there are two perspectives in this story that are changed. The Syrian king thought he could capture Elisha by sending his army, instilling fear in Elisha's servant. And Elisha prayed, and God opened the servant's eyes to see the heavenly hosts all around. So he could see, but he really couldn't see the spiritual reality. So God na- enabled him to see in a greater way. But at the same time, he prays again that God would strike the army with blindness. So though they both had physical sight, neither one could really, I mean, both were approaching it in different ways. The, the man of God was approaching it through Elisha and his faith, in essence. And by praying, by Elisha praying for him, he's invited to see what is really there. The true reality of who God is. Whereas the Syrian army thought that they could fight against God and take him out. And so, in essence, they were blinded. Even though they physically could see, they were spiritually blind. And then he makes their physical blindness match with their spiritual blindness. See, that's what's going on. See, when you continue on in your sin, God will make you even more blinded. That you'll continue to do more and more sin. You'll be trapped in it. But we have to invite God to change our perspective, to transform us from the inside out, to help us see through his eyes how the world works and how it operates. So we need to have, be connected to God's power. We need to invite God to change our perspective. And we need to make sure that we are praying boldly. Praying boldly. Elisha prayed and God gave sight. See, Elisha prayed and God made also blind. We can see that prayer is powerful. Now, C.S. Lewis once said, humans, he said this, this is, you have to stay with me. He said, humans are, are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world. As animals, they inhibit time. What he meant was, is that we are fleshly spirit beings that live between two worlds, the seen and the unseen. We are residents of the world of flesh, rooted in time, experiencing reality through the five senses. But we are also spirits, part of an unseen world, an invisible world. It is a world that angels and demons inhabit. Now, spirit beings such as angels and demons dwell in an invisible world, although they can manifest themselves in our physical world, as we've talked about. And the connecting point between the visible and the invisible, between the seen and the unseen, is our faith is seen in prayer. Prayer connects us to a different world. See, when the king of Syria sent an army to seize the prophet Elisha, the army surrounded the city of Dothan. And Elisha and his servant woke up early, and he prays. I mean, he, I mean Elisha's servant's fearful. And Elisha says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those with them. And what did he do? He prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, behold, the mountain was filled, or was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, his prayer opened the world between the worlds. And our prayers do the same. Our faith enables us to battle in the invisible world that also leads to results in the visible world. Satan knows this and desires to keep us from tapping into the tools that enable us to cross between the two. Satan knows the battle is not in the physical world, but in the invisible. As we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we understand that we battle between these worlds. And there's a story I want to share with you. It's about a medical missionary who returned to his home church in Michigan. We're not exactly sure whom, from whom this story originated, so we're unable to give credit, but it beautifully illustrates our point. And perhaps you've heard this story before, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, the story, the, the missionary says this, While serving at a small field hospital in Africa, and I'm not sure which country in Africa it was in, I traveled every two weeks by bicycle through the jungle, so it could be Congo from our Congolese brothers, um, to the jungle nearby city for supplies. And this required camping overnight halfway. On one of these trips, I saw two men fighting in the city. One was seriously injured, so I treated him and witnessed to him of the Lord Jesus Christ. I then returned home without incident. Upon arriving in the city several weeks later, I was approached by the man I had treated earlier. He told me that he had known I carried money and medicine. He said, some friends and I followed you into the jungle, knowing you would, you would camp overnight. We waited for you to go to sleep and planned to kill you and take your money and drugs. Just as we were about to move into your campsite, we saw that you were surrounded by 26 armed guards. The medical missionary said, I laughed at this and, and said I was certainly all alone out in that jungle campsite. The young men pressed the point, no, sir, I was not the only one to see the guards. My five friends also saw them. We all counted them. It was because of those guards that we were afraid and left you alone. At this point in the church presentation in Michigan, one of the men in the church jumped up and interrupted the missionary and asked, can you tell me the exact date when this happened? The missionary thought for a while and recalled the date. The man in the congregation told this side of the story. He said, on that night uh, in in Africa, it was morning here, and I was going to actually play golf. And as I put my bag in the car, I felt God leading me to pray for you. In fact, the urging was so strong that I called the men of this church together to pray for you. Will all of these men who met with me that day please stand? The men who had met that day to pray together stood. There were 26 men. See, that's the power of prayer and what God does. Pray boldly. Prayer is powerful. Jesus understood that. That's why he cleared out the temple. We don't understand that. God works through the prayers of his people. We are in a spiritual battle, but we must remember that the victory does not rest in us, but in God. The battle is the Lord's. And we must remember that when the battle ends and when there's victory, all praise goes to God. All praise goes to God, not us. It's not about us. It's about him. God must receive our praise. Our praise is powerful. God desires that we bring a sacrifice of praise, as Hebrews 13, 15 says, for when we praise his name, God communicates his presence to us. See, we're in a spiritual battle, but hope is not lost. Matter of fact, it's guaranteed. And in some ways, it's a bit like the battle has, I mean, has been determined, just the devil hasn't really realized or understood that yet. It's like Lieutenant Hiro Onada. I don't know if you've heard of this man. He had been stationed in Lubang Island in the Philippines when it was overrun by U.S. forces in February 1945. Most of the Japanese troops were slain or captured, but Unada and several other men were holed up in the jungle. The others were eventually killed, but Unada held out for 29 years. 29 years in the jungle. And he didn't believe that the war was over. He was still fighting that battle. It wasn't until the Japanese government located his commanding officer who went to Labang in 1974 to order Onada to give up. 
The lieutenant stepped out of the jungle to accept the order of surrender in his dress, uniform, and sword with his rifle still in operating condition. He was defeated, but he didn't understand that completely yet. It's the same with the devil. It's like thunderstorms that we experienced this past week. We might see the lightning, but a few seconds pass, and then we see the thunder, or hear the thunder. Jesus' death on the cross was the lightning, but the devil still hasn't heard the thunder yet. Because that thunder's coming. His defeat will be assured. He was defeated on the cross, but won't experience the fullness of that loss until the time when Jesus comes on the clouds with all the angels to redeem to redeem his people and to wage war on the devil and will bring the fullness of his kingdom, which is already breaking through in the lives of his people. May the Lord our God give us strength and peace as we battle on his name, knowing that our God is the victor and will be the victor forevermore. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us to see that this is a spiritual war. Lord, it's not a political one. It's not one that's drawn off on... uh, in geographic lines or through ethnic groups. It's not a religious war. Lord, it's not a war that's waged with guns, with ammunition, uh, with explosive devices or tanks. It's one that is waged with prayer and worship, with fasting uh, and praise. Lord, help us to see the reality of this truth, that there have been many that have been captured and blinded by the evil one. And Lord, for those of us who have who have been AWOL. Lord, I pray that you bring us back, that we might see the victory that we have in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those that are here, that are still blinded, Lord, I pray that you might open their eyes, that they might see the truth of who you are and what it is that you have done, that you sent your son to die on the cross because of your love for us. As you have said within your word, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, I pray that we might see all together, see the truth of who you are. We might see you in all of your power and all of your glory. That we all might place our faith and trust in you by repenting of our sins and following you in discipleship. And Lord, I pray that you glorify your name in our lives. I pray that we might keep a short account of sin. Lord, for those who are hiding sins, Lord, I pray that they might confess it, they might forsake it, and they might find and truly follow you. And Lord, I pray as we go through this series together in the next several, next few months that we might have open hearts and we might learn how to wield the weapons of our warfare successfully, victoriously for the glory of your name. So Lord, touch us, use us, help us to see that with the hope that we have and the victory that is ours through your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.